Hi, this is Pauline at Recovery Radio, and I'd like to thank all of you who have supported us financially this year. We have been positively humbled by your expressions of gratitude. Between our YouCaring online fundraiser, our PayPal subscribers, and increased local donations, we have met our goal to raise additional monies to cover our costs for the coming year. These donations will be used to ensure that our service will continue to provide audio support to the worldwide community of recovering people. All of us here at Recovery Radio thank you from the bottom of our collective heart. My name is Winnie. I'm the wife of an alcoholic, a member of Al-Anon, and I'm not always grateful for either one. I do have to tell you that uh, I think Al-Anon is a little more reliable than himself. However, he tells me that's a matter of opinion. And until I came to Al-Anon, he never had an opinion. So (laughs) it's what you call getting stuck with your own recovery. Before I get into any of the gruesome details, I I would like to thank the committee for inviting me to come back to, to Edmonton this snow doesn't surprise me at all, because the last time I was here, I landed in typical California weather, and I called immediately to let those who I knew were waiting to hear about my safe arrival, how beautiful it was, and by three o'clock in the afternoon, you were having a blizzard. (laughs) So I called them back and told them, don't expect me for the rest of the month, uh, because you know how it is in Canada. And uh, went on my merry way, and by darn, I got up the next morning, and it was just like California. So I called them and told them that I would be home. (laughs) And then you had another blizzard, and I called them again, and finally they said, just come when you get here. (laughs) They weren't the least bit interested in your change of weather, but I I am grateful to be back here uh, again. I I was telling Pat at lunch, I, uh, I had been asked, in about 1966 to talk in Winnipeg and I am not the world's greatest flyer and we got into a storm and all of a sudden I realized I'm on my way up there to tell them how to stay home and take care of their responsibilities and my responsibilities are home and I'm in this damn airplane (laughs) and so I made a deal with God that if he got me home safely I would not leave again until my responsibilities were able to take care of themselves and uh, Edmonton was the first place that I came after my kids were grown. So it's sort of like going back to a place where things began for me. I, uh, I also like to be in a place that I don't have to make amends to. And uh, Edmonton was one of those places. You see, if you'd have been on Route 66, I'd have hit you long before I got here the first time. Uh, for the benefit of any of you who might be wondering, I want you to know from the very beginning that I am not an authority on Al-Anon, and I haven't got the slightest idea how it works, and I'm glad. Because if I knew how it worked, I'd change it. I um, just happens to be my way of life. I didn't come to Al-Anon for any of the good reasons. I didn't come because I wanted it, I didn't come because I needed it, and I certainly didn't come because I thought it could help me. I didn't know there was anything wrong with me. I came because I'm married to a nut. And he decided to go into the hospital and do something about his drinking, despite the help I had been giving him. (laughs) And one of the conditions was that he attend AA meetings. Now, at an AA meeting, he heard of Al-Anon. 
And it may be difficult for you to believe this, but he took the time to sit down, write a letter to the Al-Anon Central Office in Los Angeles, and tell those complete strangers that there was something wrong with me. (laughs) And when I got here, I didn't stay for any of the good reasons. I didn't stay because I liked it. I didn't like it. And I didn't like it to the point that I tried to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I took the 20 questions test, and I flunked it. So I went to the guy I figured was the big shot in our area. He was the one that always got the chair with the seat in it, because uh, contrary to the way meeting rooms and Alano clubs are furnished today, when I came into Al-Anon, they used to furnish him with rejects from the Goodwill. And if you didn't hit your bottom before you got there, you did shortly thereafter, you know. Because none of the darn things had any seats in them. But uh, this guy always seemed to get the, the throne, and so I figured he must be the big shot. And so one day I went to him and I confessed. I said, I, I think I'm an alcoholic. And he said, well, what makes you think so? Well, I said, I flunked your test. Well, he said, if you flunked the test, the chances are you are an alcoholic. When did you have your last drink? Well, I... I said, I think it was about three years ago. (laughs) And he said, lady, if you've got to think about it, and it's been three years ago, go back over with those women and let them help you. (laughs) Now, I don't know what shape you were in when you got to this way of life, but I want you to know that in my condition, being rejected by Alcoholics Anonymous didn't help me a whole lot. But I did go back with those women, and I stayed, I think, primarily because I wanted to get them to help me get even with them. See, that was my way of life. I was always recruiting these people to help me get even with those people, and pretty soon these people became those people, and it just seemed to go on forever. But I did get back to Al-Anon, and I stayed, I think because there happened to be one female in that group that was the nastiest woman that I have ever come in contact with. And I decided to outsit her. (laughs) Now, it wasn't so much what she said to me, because she never really said anything but she'd look at me and she'd go (laughs) and I didn't know what that meant and she knitted which almost drove me up a wall because I don't knit and when you're perfect and you don't knit you're in trouble and God knows I tried to knit because even today when Eddie can't get a rise out of me any other way He'll say, when are you going to finish that sweater you started for me in 1942, you know? And in true Al-Anon tradition, I have saved it. And um, someday I'm going to finish it so he can see the changes there's been in his life since 1942. (laughs) But uh, if you've got a mental picture of this female with her tongue going while her knitting needles went click, 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 then you know why I'm here. And I didn't even begin to believe that there was anything wrong with me uh, or that I was sick, which is one of the first things they told me, until I began to like her. And then I went immediately to my sponsor and I said, I think I'm beginning to like her. And my sponsor had one answer for every situation. It's all right. I could have told her I shot my husband and she'd say, it's all right. And I said, no, it's not all right. And she said, why? And I said, because I have never changed my mind about anyone. And that was the truth. You see, I put people in categories, those you encouraged, those you tolerated, and those you ignored. And once I had you placed, 
You had to stay there. Because I didn't know how to shuffle you around. And I realized today that I probably deprived myself of a lot of very meaningful relationships because of my inability to allow people to be whatever they want to be. Now, I know there are some alcoholics in the group today, and if you don't mind, I would like to give them their message first. Uh, <laughs> well, you know how they are, and uh, truth of the matter is, I'm not even sure I got a message for them, but uh, I talked in Fontana one night, it's a little town east of where I live, and it hadn't been one of my better days, so it kind of surprised me when this girl came up to me after the meeting, and she said, where are you going to be the next time? And I said, well, I'm not sure. Why? Well, she said, I'd just love to have my husband hear you. So I figured I must have said something profound, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I asked her, I said, do you think I could help your husband? Well, she said, not really, but after he hears you, he's going to be glad he got me. <laughs> so, may be the only message you get, but I want you to know it works in Alateen, too. I've sent a lot of kids home grateful. I, uh, I only have one story, and I don't apologize for it. There is not a way in the world that I can change what I used to be like. But what I can do today, thanks to places like this, people like you, is use those so-called unhappinesses of the past as a stepping stone into a better way to live today. And so for the next few minutes, what I'm going to do is share a little experience, strength, and hope by telling you some of what I used to be like, what happened. And in my particular case, I'll let you guess. Because there are people who still don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> and that's all right with me. Say, I found out that it doesn't really bother me how much they worry about me. It's only when I begin to worry about them worrying about me that I get into all the trouble. I grew up in a family where there was a drinking problem, at least I thought there was, and I used to call my father an alcoholic, but I don't know whether he was or not. He didn't think he was. He thought he was a social drinker. He lived a social drinker, and he died a social drinker, but he liked it. And when I wasn't helping him, he liked me too. But when I came to Al-Anon, I could spot an alcoholic two miles away. Anybody that was going into a bar, coming out of a bar, standing in front of a liquor store, or just looking strange. <laughs> To me, was an alcoholic, because that's what I was accustomed to, strange people. And I never knew where they came from, but they always seemed to move next door to me. I was always surrounded by weirdos. Now, in growing up, it wasn't what my father did that bothered me. It's what my father wouldn't do that bothered me. You see, I am a born researcher, and at a very early age, I started researching fathers. Now, this takes some footwork because you got to cover the neighborhood and watch the fathers. And then I would come home and look at mine. He never did any of the things he was supposed to do. And I made a few suggestions, but I was raised in a hard-headed Irish family. My father wouldn't take direction from a four or five, six-year-old, whatever I happened to be at the time. So right then, I set a pattern to my life which lasted until I came to Al-Anon. I got even. I ignored him. And ignoring him made my life more miserable than all his drinking could have done if he'd have been drinking at me. Because when I was away at school, I could be honest about my mother, my brothers, and my sister, but never my father. Always described him the way he should be. And it made life difficult because it meant nobody could go home with me. 
See, if they did, they were going to find out one of two things right now. The man that was living with my mother was not my father. (laughs) Or that I was the biggest liar that ever came down the pike. Now, I never considered myself a liar. I looked upon myself as a diplomat. Because I didn't lie, I just didn't tell the truth. And I thought there was a difference. You see, I learned at a very early age that people anticipate what you're going to say. So you lead them up to a certain point and stop. They guess what you would have said if you'd have gone on. But they're very poor guessers. However, I really never felt I should be held responsible for their inadequacies. And I have trouble with that even sometimes today because since my husband has been sober and taken an interest in my welfare, which is just a nice way of saying he don't tell me to drop dead as often as he used to, But if I'm going someplace that's quite a ways away, he usually volunteers to go with me. Now this, at least for me, is a test of serenity. Because I'm married to the original. Don't know where he's going when he leaves. He don't know where he is when he gets there. And usually he don't know where he's been when he gets back. But if he goes with me, he directs me every step of the way, you know. And we're at opposite ends of the pole when it comes to being anything alike. Because I'm married to a thinker. Sometimes he thinks two, three weeks before he answers you. You know, it isn't as bad as it sounds. I mean, it's a marvelous memory course. Because you've got to keep in mind everything you've been talking about. Because when he comes up with the answer, he never connects with anything. He just says, yes, uh, Well, I'll give you a better example. Since he's given up drinking, he's taken up dusting. And that's almost as bad as drinking. But we were playing golf one day, and I happened to look over, and he was dusting the golf cart, which I thought was ridiculous. So when I got back in the cart, I merely said to him, When you die, I'm going to bury you in a plastic bag. And he didn't say anything, so I didn't say anything. But two weeks later... We were having a nice, quiet, friendly cup of coffee one morning, and all of a sudden, he said, I don't think that was very nice. (laughs) I guess he thought it over. He didn't like the bag idea. I don't know, but uh, that's the way he is, and I'm getting used to it. But on the other hand, I'm one of those people that reacts immediately. You know, I try to get it done before I really know what you want me to do. And if you put two people like that in one automobile, you got a problem. Because if we're going down the freeway and he says, turn right, I turn right. And he says, not here. Yeah. I'm about 60 miles too soon. So uh, on this particular night, I had been asked to come to Chula Vista and I was having a moment of growth or whatever you want to call it. I just was not well enough to go that far with him without running over him. And I knew it. But I didn't want to tell him I didn't want him to go because he gets hurt very easily. And then he mopes around. And I make amends. I don't even know what I've done. You know, I don't want to get involved in all that stuff. So I just said, I'm going to a meeting. He said, okay, I left. But that night, I didn't get home at 10.30 or a quarter of 11. It was mm, more like a quarter of one. And when I walked through the door, there he stood in my spot. With that age-old question, where the hell have you been? And without even thinking, I said, well, how far do you think it is to Chula Vista? 
Now, he accused me of lying to him. I did not lie to him. I didn't tell him I wasn't going to Chula Vista. And if he had said, Winnie, are you going to Chula Vista? I'd have said yes. You get in the picture? If you were bright enough to ask the right question, you got the whole story. And if you weren't, you got stuck with what you thought. And... uh, I might add that gets you into a little trouble once in a while, too. Well, anyhow, my dad did have one habit kind of slopped over into later years, which was sleeping on the living room floor. Now, it wasn't that he liked sleeping on the living room floor. It just worked out that way, you know. He'd come home and he'd sit down, lean down, lay down. And it was a pretty good indication he was good for the night. And my mother, being the type of person she was, let me understand that is his business. You tend to your business, we'll have no problem. So I used to step over him and go about my business. But I should have stepped on him. He bothered me on that living room floor. And when I got one of my own, they used to pick peculiar places to sleep. I didn't care if he was on the porch, the lawn. always kind of had a fondness for the freeway myself because, uh, well, Eddie had a double indemnity clause in his insurance. (laughs) And that was one of the first games we ever played. I kept paying the premiums. He took vitamins with his beer. But... um, I couldn't stand him on the living room floor. And I can remember to this minute taking him by the heels, you know, and I'd pull him and his head bounced. I loved it when his head bounced. (laughs) There is something about that thud that just makes you feel good deep down inside, you know. Well, I don't know what happened to the man that I met, fell in love with, and permitted to marry me, but... As soon as he was mine, I decided to help him. I wanted to help him become what I knew he wanted to be for my sake. Now, I'm not well enough yet to define that for you, but I'm going to tell you something I didn't tell him, and that is that my help is deadly. I had friends that wouldn't even tell me they were in trouble for fear I'd help them. You know. But, of course, Eddie and I ceased to be friends. When we got married, we became competitors. He spent his life trying to outwit me. I spent my life trying to outwit him. And the upshot of the whole thing is we ended up a couple of halfwits. But uh, he was in the Navy, professional man, full lieutenant, and I didn't go into this blindly, as I said before. I'm a, a born researcher. I researched the Navy. And unfortunately for me in the Navy, I came across the table of operations. And I happened to notice there was only a couple of lines between what he was and what I decided to help him become, which was Admiral. Now, I knew they only had one admiral in the dental corps, but I only had one man in mind for the job. It didn't look as difficult as it turned out to be, but had I been halfway bright, I would have joined the Navy myself. I showed up every day. He showed up when the spirit moved him, and I would have made a marvelous shore patrolman. I have a little bit of bird dog in me, and whenever I'd find out he hadn't shown up, you know, I'd just put my nose to the ground and away I'd go. Sooner or later, I'd find him, but by then he was usually in no shape for me letting anybody else find him. So that's when I used to hide him. We played hide-and-seek for years, and he didn't even know there was a game going on. <laughs> but uh, after he came to Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, I felt that I, I really had to help him with the program. I just wasn't sure he was bright enough to get what they said they wanted to give him. So I went to every meeting. And uh, I had a little notebook, and I would jot down a few of the pertinent things that applied to his peculiar case. And then I'd spoon-feed it to him during the week, you know, in case they had an examination. I wanted the dummy to be able to pass. (laughs) And I heard two things at those meetings that are worse than drinking. Do you know that there are lots of things that are worse than drinking? 
sobriety, for instance. I can only speak for myself, but it was always easier for me to watch Eddie throw up than grow up. It just worked out that way. But anyhow, one of the things I heard was sleep teaching. Now, I got myself a big AA book, and every night, just as he dozed off, I would open it to chapter 5, and I would read to him how it works. <laughs> Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Beautiful reading. Right emphasis, right pauses. I memorized the whole fifth chapter. Dummy slept through the whole damn thing. <laughs> And I still think it's the reason when we go to an AA meeting outside our own area where people, when you walk in, really don't know which one switch. It's always me they come up to. They say, keep coming back, honey. It'll work. Yeah, I heard a fellow a few years ago up in Lancaster say that uh, one of the things that made it difficult for him to come to Alcoholics Anonymous was the fact that none of them look like alcoholics. But he figured in the 15 and a half years he'd been associated with the fellowship, he'd probably run into somewhere in the neighborhood of a quarter of a million alcoholics. And would you believe that of that number, only 10 really looked like alcoholics? They turned out to be Al-Anon. <laughs> so that ought to give you an idea where you're coming from. But the other thing I heard was you can't get drunk if you're grateful. Now... Right after I came to Al-Anon, they removed from my vocabulary a few of my finer phrases, such as, you had better not be drunk tonight. If I smell liquor on your breath, your clothes will be on the porch. Of course, my neighbors thought I was some kind of a fresh air nut. I put them out every night, brought them in every morning, you know, but uh, they wouldn't let me say that, so I had to find some way to get the message across, and when I heard that bit about gratitude, I just latched right onto it every morning. When Eddie would leave for the office, I'd say, I'll remember, today, be grateful. And he'd say, for what? You know, because the last thing to return is their disposition. So I used to give him things to be grateful for, but I wasn't really all that grateful myself in those days, so probably without even realizing it. I think I started one of the first gratitude lists for him. I jotted down a few of the things he should be grateful for, starting with myself, of course. And um, while I was doing that, I happened to remember this game of hide-and-seek. So one day I explained to him, because I'm one of those that's a great explainer. I, I, I don't know about anybody else, but I could never say yes or no. I had to give you a detailed explanation, and I'm not much better than that today. The example I usually use is my watch, not this one, but... I always wanted a watch with a little teeny-weeny tiny face, something that would, um, well, kind of reflect my personality, you know. And uh, just as soon as my eyes got bad, Eddie bought me one. Uh, well, they have their own ways of getting even, in case you haven't recognized it. But anyhow, uh, I complained about it so much that he got me another one, a big one, you know, because he only's got two speeds. And uh, in my enthusiasm, I pulled the stem out of it. Well, Lord, I didn't want him to think I was abusing his gifts, so I fixed it myself, which is an advantage we Al-Anons have. We can fix anything. <laughs> and it worked very well for quite a while, but I happened to be up in Utah, and some poor unsuspecting Utahan, noticing I had a watch, asked me what time it was. 
Well, I had to tell him about the watch with the little teeny-weeny face and the bad eyes and pulling out the stem, fixing it myself. I have to keep it wound. It gains five minutes every 24 hours. I've had it three years. Now, there's an hour's difference between Canab and California, and I looked up, and the man was gone. <laughs> and the thing that really upset me was I felt like 007 talking to my watch out of the corner. You know, you know, I, I didn't even see him leave. But uh, Eddie, of course, was a hostage, so uh, one morning I did explain to him that when he drank excessively, it had been necessary for me on occasion to hide him. And I had put him in some rather out-of-the-way places, but I'd never lost him. So be grateful, you know, and I did put him in some strange places. The one I usually tell about happened at the Long Beach Naval Station, and I tell it primarily because it points out a lot of things about me. Uh, they used to have a mock submarine just inside the sentry gate. And one morning I came across Lloyd John in front of that mock submarine with his six-pack of beer at the exact moment that I spotted his commanding officer coming from the opposite direction. Well, I had to get rid of him because he was living proof I hadn't told the whole story. But the only place I had to put him was in that submarine. Now, there's one other little item you should be aware of. When I came to Al-Anon, I had one of the greatest pitching arms. I could throw a full six-pack of beer farther than he had strength enough to retrieve it. So if I was around and he had a six-pack of beer, he'd hold it, you know, like I was going to take it away from him. Well, getting him in that sub is not as hard as it sounds. I just helped him up. He fell down. He didn't wear his phone. But getting him out... Now, that's a whole other story. He didn't trust me, so he wouldn't hand me the beer. And I have many times since wondered what that sentry must have thought of that female, half in, half out of the conning tower, that darn submarine, finally coming up with this lieutenant commander holding his beer in the tap. You know, he thought he'd been torpedoed. Because I used to go on that base like I owned it in my housecoat and my curlers. Um, I don't really think the alcoholic appreciates what we give up in order to help them. <laughs> now, in my particular case, it was dressing. I, of course, always had a choice. I could go to bed in whatever I was going to wear the next day. But I don't think you get that comfortable feeling you have with one of them old housecoats, you know. Mine happened to be a Chanel number. And it sort of had double duty. If, if somebody upset me, I'd pluck it while I was planning, you know. Well, it looked like lace when I got through. I guess you know how I felt when Eddie came home and announced he had resigned from the Navy. I was like somebody that had lost a business. Because I had begun to wonder about him. That's true. But I never blamed the drinking. I didn't want my husband to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking. I wanted him to learn to mind. Because, you see, I never objected to him having a drink. Sometimes I allowed him two. And there were times when three were called for, but there was something strange about him that I didn't understand. You see, it seemed like one drink and he was set in cement. I couldn't do anything with him. And I don't know how many times I said to him, if we are invited to a cocktail party on Friday... We can come home on Friday. We don't have to stay till Monday, you see. But I think part of my confusion stemmed from the fact that I like those cocktail parties. I like that nice, easy social life in the service, and I didn't even mind making a fool out of myself occasionally. He was making a career out of it. Strange thing is, though, as his drinking increased, mine decreased. 
It became more important for me to know where he was, who he was with, where he was going, how he was going to get there, or what was he thinking. Have you ever tried to read somebody's mind through their eyeballs when their lids are at half mass? That's not easy. And when I first got to Al-Anon, one of the most difficult things I heard was, it's the first drink. Because I knew it wasn't the first drink, but I couldn't remember whether it was the second or the third or the fourth. But you see, I wasn't trying to figure out what alcohol did to him. I was trying to figure out where I lost control. And I got so, so bad about correcting people when they'd say it's the first drink that finally one day my sponsor said to me, Listen, Winnie, don't help them. Let them suffer. And I didn't like them anyhow, so I, I quit helping them. And then one night, as God has a way of doing in my life, I went to an AA meeting and that man talked almost exclusively on the first drink. And later on, we ran into him in the coffee shop, which is to say we were in the same coffee shop, and I spotted him. And I said, Daddy, I think I'll run over there and tell that man that if he intends to speak at a public level, he should be more factual. Now, I always like to give the devil his due. My husband has never deprived me of making as big a jackass out of myself as I want to. And he sat right there while I traipsed across the coffee shop, sat down with this complete stranger, and picked his talk apart. Poor man was in a state of shock, you know, he just kind of sat there and looked at me. And finally got his voice back, took him almost a full minute, happened to be a railroad man from Texas. And he says, well, honey, let me put it to you this way. When you get hit by a train, it wasn't the caboose that killed you. <laughs> and from that day to this, I've got no trouble with the first drink. I just see a train go by and let it go, you know. But I was a long way from Alan on at that point. I, I still thought a good wife was responsible for making something out of whatever she got stuck with. So uh, I began to wonder, what am I going to do with him? You know, and while I was thinking about it, I happened to remember his mother. Now, I never liked his mother, and I never had any reason not to like her, except she was his mother. But she didn't believe in drinking anything but water. So naturally, I figured it out fairly quickly. Uh, poor thing just hadn't had the advantages that I had had being raised in a sofa drinking family. So he probably didn't know how to drink, so I decided to teach him. And have you ever tried to teach a drunk how to drink? Well, you got at least one problem. You've got to get him sober enough to find out if he's learning anything that you're teaching him. So in order to do that, I decided to get him out of California because I hated California. To me, it was one large bar separated by an occasional liquor store. And I decided to take him back to the Middle West where people are really people. That's where I'm from. And that, well, it lasted till we got to Gallup, New Mexico. I, uh... I spent three of the most miserable days of my life in that godforsaken place because I made one tiny mistake. I stopped. <laughs> and he got into a bar that I was afraid to follow him into because from where I was sitting, he and a tribe of Indians went in. Now, I'm a great John Wayne fan. I know what Indians and firewater do when they get mixed up together. They weren't going to get me in that godforsaken place, so I sat outside and waited. Never dawned on me there was a back door. He went in the front door, out the back door. Wherever he wanted to go, in the back door, out the front door, and there's Old Faithful. Out and right where he left her. And I always like to mention the little Indian that was standing in front of that place because I think she was my first contact with that certain something that I found in Al-Anon. In AA, they call it the unspoken language. But in Al-Anon, at least for me, I think it's the language of the heart. This is the only place in my life that I have ever been where I can feel what somebody else is saying. 
Or I can watch someone walk in for the first time. I don't have to know who they are, where they came from, what their husband does, what kind of a car they drive. I don't have to have statistics. I just look in their eyes. And when I see in their eyes that same, there ain't nobody home here look that I've seen in my eyes. I know where they've been. A little gal from Montreal, matter of fact, uh, probably put it into words better than I when she was visiting in California one time and she was describing how they handled their meetings in her area. And she said, you know, we have greeters. And believe it or not, when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, the girl put her hand out and said, my name is Pat. And she said, I was so upset I couldn't even tell her who I was. All I could say to her was, I've been to hell and back. And she said, you know, that girl never even hesitated. She just smiled sweetly and said, well, isn't it strange then that we've never met before? Because that's the way it is. Whether I like to admit it or not, I paved that road to hell with my fear and my suspicion, my ambition, my egomania, with all those frustrations that I couldn't explain. And yet I didn't know until I came to Al-Anon who the Master Mason really was. But as I said before, I was a long way from Alamon. I looked at that little Indian that first morning, and I was so embarrassed for her that she would allow herself to be degraded by standing in front of that place. Now, I am across the street making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for five children, but she looked strange to me. <laughs> Second day, she looked pretty good. Third day, kind of hide her, you know. <laughs> she had her side of the street, and I had mine. And if you've ever been to Gallup, New Mexico, that's all it is. Two sides of the street. And we had them both covered. Well, anyhow, I had to make one of my many decisions, which is what my life's been. You know, one decision after another. I, my sponsor told me one time I was the only person in the world she knew who could starve to death in a cafeteria. But uh, anyhow, I had decided that I would never again stop where the human race could contaminate my husband. Now, if you're driving across country in an automobile and you don't intend to stop, you've got to make adjustments. And some darn fool had told me that Texas had dry counties. That's the adjustment I made. Mapped out a course so that I never stopped unless I was in a dry county. Now, it really didn't do a whole lot of good. He got just as drunk in a dry one as he would have been a wet one. But when you're going crazy on a slow, easy plan, this can help. You can spend hours wondering, where did he get it? I don't know where they get it, but I know today that if I'd have walled him up, he'd have come out drunk, and I don't know where they get it. But my kids think Texas is the biggest place on earth, because it took us almost two weeks to get through it. See, what I didn't know was they put one dry one between two wet ones, and we darn near never got out of Texas. And it was kind of an unwritten law as far as the kids were concerned. If she stops and you've got anything to do, get out, get it done, and get back, she'll never miss you. That's about the way it was. See, I concentrated on that seat. And if it was full, we went. If it was empty, we waited. See how simple it is? Of course, God alone knows how much travel time we lost when he got in the back by mistake. I never looked back there. That's not where he's supposed to be. And I could depend on those kids that never would have said anything because one of their favorite sayings was, don't upset her, <laughs> which used to upset me. <laughs> now, I'm only offering my opinion, but I don't believe my kids reacted to the alcoholic. My kids reacted to my reaction to the alcoholic. Because it's true, Eddie came home drunk lots of times, did very strange things. But they knew he was drunk, 
and they knew he was strange. How do you explain me? I'm running the group, and I don't know where I am half the time. You know, I had one son, our number two son. Could not keep that kid in school. Take him to school, he usually beat me home. And after he got to go into Alateen, and I got to go into Al-Anon, and we got to where we could talk as people instead of God and the little child, which is the way it had been. And I asked him once, I said, Billy, why wouldn't you go to school? Didn't you like school? He said, Mom, I really did. But I was afraid you'd move while I was gone. (laughs) And you know, that can be a real fear for a little kid. Well, I finally got to Missouri, or Kansas, really. I I chose it very carefully because I'm a native-born Missourian raised on the propaganda that Kansas is a dry state. But it's not. Everything they drink in Missouri, I think they smuggle over from Kansas because we were there less time than we were in Illinois until Eddie found a bar within walking distance, and naturally I had taken the car away from him because, well, just like you would any other 10-year-old child you're taking care of. And every day he used to walk down to this place. It kind of tickled me, too, after he got sober. He said he had to pass a Catholic church on this jaunt. Now, I'm Catholic, but he's not. In fact, for years I thought I was doing penance for marrying that Methodist, but that's another story. Anyhow, he took the time to go into that church one day, light a candle, and say a prayer for me. And then he noticed a sign that said the candle cost a quarter. He didn't want to spend a quarter, so he blew it out. And I've never had nerve enough to ask him, was he praying for me or against me? You know, because that's about the time the fun started. Now, here again, and it's still just my opinion. But I, uh, I believe the non-alcoholic is by far sicker than the alcoholic. Because you take a drunk to a meeting, and maybe you don't get him sober, but you get him dry. And right now, you're going to see a difference. But you take someone like me... Perfect. Never did anything that I couldn't explain, if I had enough time. Devoted my life to my family, to my community, to the Red Cross, to the DAR, to the Navy Relief, to anything to get my hands on. Yeah, I was devoted. Tell me I'm sick. How can you be sick and do what I did? Or that I have to change? Well, how would you improve on perfect? And that's what I was. Miserable? You bet. Perfectly miserable. Nothing upset me like a good day. (laughs) Haven't you ever had one of those? Where everything's going just the way it's supposed to and you're sitting there waiting. And you go to bed at night, you're exhausted. You haven't done anything but wait. And who are you going to tell? The other reason I think that the non-alcoholic is sicker is because occasionally Eddie would quit drinking. I was crazy all the time. If he quit drinking, I'd try to figure out what I'd do to stop him. And while I'm trying to figure out what I did to stop him, he starts again. Now I've got to find out what starts him, so if I ever stop him, I'll never start him again. Over and over and over, you know. But he did quit drinking all of a sudden, and I had decided to help him become a millionaire, but I didn't tell him. Because you never want to let him know what you're doing with him. I picked out a small, unsuspecting town in the state of Missouri that needed a dentist. Went up to Kansas City to see a friend of my father's who, unfortunately for him, was in the dental supply business. And I talked that man into giving me $17,000 worth of dental equipment. I set up one of the most beautiful dental offices you have ever seen. And I had patients, too. But no dentist. (laughs) 
was busy doing all that work, he found the one place I had overlooked when I canvassed that town, which was a bar called Blondie's. And to the best of my recollection, he was only out of that bar and in that office once. And that's when a man came in that I decided to help. So I went down to Blondie's. Now, I don't know how you used to react to stress, but when I got upset, my hair would stand right straight up. And it wasn't so much that my eyes came out, but my skin went back. (laughs) And it gave me kind of a ferocious look, you know, and I'd march into those bars like an avenging angel, scare the hell out of the bartender. (laughs) Most of my amends have been to bartenders I scared the hell out of. But I would demand that he do what he's supposed to do, and he's not the world's bravest man. He would, and he did. We walked back to the office, walked in, and the first thing that jerk said was, Listen, Doc, I'm allergic to Novocaine. But I got my own anesthesia, so he took a bottle out of his pocket. He had a drink, the dentist had a drink, they pulled the tube, and they both went back to Blondie's. (laughs) And that's when I made up my mind that that town could suffer. I wouldn't help them. And yet today, as I have been many other days, I'm grateful that drunk as he was, sick as he was, he was more emotionally stable than I was cold sober. Because, you see, those people weren't people to me. I didn't really care whether he helped them or not. And I don't think in the final analysis it was my undying love that kept me trying to help him. I had that crazy idea that when he changes, I'm going to be all right. But that's not the way it worked for me. You see, I was one of those people that was brought up to believe you must be successful. Spent my whole life looking for success. Couldn't find it because I didn't know what it was. And I didn't really find out until I'd been in Al-Anon for quite a while. And my number one son got drafted. And I didn't really want to join the army, but he's a lot like his father. And so I, I, I kept going to the meetings, and I didn't exactly come out and explain it, but I hinted a lot. And one night my girlfriend, the one with the... Nasty woman. I guess she got tired of listening to me because she said, Winnie, why don't you get off that kid's back and allow him the dignity of failure? Now, I had never heard those two words used in the same sentence before. But she went on to say, if he never fails, he can't possibly succeed. Because if he's never experienced one thing, he'll never recognize the other. And do you know that since that night... I haven't been to an Al-Anon meeting, to an AA meeting, or even to an Alateen meeting, and I'll bet you haven't either. That you haven't watched absolute failure walk in, stick around, and become a success. Now, I don't mean from a monetary standpoint, because success to me today doesn't have a price tag on it. It isn't something that you invite people over to or drive them around the block in or wear to a party. Success to me today is the ability to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and know who I am or to stand here right this minute and say my name is Winnie Eddy and know who I'm talking about because you see all my life I had a name but I never had an identity I was always somebody's wife somebody's mother somebody's daughter somebody's granddaughter somebody's something but who am I? I asked my sponsor that question I'm going to tell you a little bit about her in just a second I said well how do you find out who you are? And she said, well, when you have cake for dessert, dear, how do you serve it? See what I mean? And so I humored her a lot. I I told her very frankly, I take a pretty good-sized piece and I give it to Eddie. And then I'm very even as far as the children are concerned. And sometimes there's a little piece left over for me and sometimes there isn't. And she said, yeah, I know. That's the way you live your life, too. I said, what? 
She said, you take a big chunk of your life and you give it to him. And then you're very even with the children. And sometimes there's a little piece for you and sometimes there isn't. I said, well, what do you do in a case like that? Oh, why, she said, it's very simple. You take the first piece of cake. (laughs) And that's what I try to do, one day at a time, to the best of my ability. Because, you see, I'm one of those people that found out the hard way. If I do for you in preference to doing for me, I'm setting you up. And it may take me years before I call in that marker, but someday you know who's going to get the blame because I didn't do what I wanted to do or be what I wanted to be or have what I wanted to have. Because, you see, left to my own devices, I'm one of those people that falls into that crevice of unworthiness. And then I have to claw my way back up to the plateau where I can accept the fact that God in his intentions wanted me to be just as happy and just as serene as anybody else on earth. But I was still a long way from Al-Anon. When I left California, I had five children. I have eight altogether, as Pat told you. Usually I make you count them as they creep in just like I did because I was always surprised. <clears throat> and Eddie was a little shocked, too, when he sobered up. He thought I was babysitting. <laughs> But that's his story. I don't go into it. But um, I, uh, I knew when I left California I was expecting a baby. But I always lived on a schedule. You know, make the beds at 7 o'clock, which isn't easy if they don't get up to late. And if you have five children, having a baby's not a big deal. And especially if you have five and so forth and so on. So that was kind of at the bottom. But it was getting close to the time. So I went to see this doctor in Kansas City. Now, whether you realize it or not, doctors are very happy people. Most of them are just glad you're sick. This one was a joy boy of the whole bunch. You should have seen the treatment. He helped me in, sat me down, patted me on the head, and then he hit me with the brick. Mrs. Eddie, you're going to have twins. I almost died in his office. Because I wasn't really counting on one. He was insisting on two. And I had problems. I had a dental office with no dentist plus five and that thing I didn't know what to do with. And besides all of that, I knew what Eddie was going to say when I told him because he said it. There are no twins in my family. (laughs) I got so involved defending my moral character that I forgot there were twins in my family. You know, it wasn't until after they arrived and my mother said, Isn't it nice? We have another set of twins. I said, In whose family? She said, Ours. I said, Well, why didn't you tell me? She said, You never asked me. No big deal in that. I never ask anybody anything. Can you think of a better way for people to find out you don't know something than to ask them? Why, even when I used to get lost, you know, I'd pull into a filling station and I would say to the attendant, where are you located? Because I knew that if I found out where he was, I'd know where I was. And then he wouldn't know I didn't know. You see, it was important. Well, as I told you in the beginning, it was a letter that my husband wrote that got me to Al-Anon. And today, as I have been many other days, I'm grateful for that letter. Grateful that he wanted to share that certain something that he felt he had found in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm also grateful to God, as I understand him, that he sent me a sponsor who had the patience of Job because I wasn't an easy nut to crack. First day she came out, she found the front door nailed shut. Well, that was necessary. I was in no shape to cover two doors. And... uh, she went around to the back, and the car was in the driveway, coffee pot boiling on the stove, and she used me, but she couldn't find me. So she went next door, and she asked this little old lady whether or not Mrs. Eddie was at home. And you know what that woman said? 
Even if she asks. Yeah. She thought I was crazy. And, and I resented that. You know, because uh, once, just once, we almost got trapped in the backyard together. And I hid in the bushes till she went in. I didn't like her. You know, and, and my kids never bothered her. I didn't forbid them to go over there because... I have always felt forbidding children to do things leave scars. So uh, I just used a little psychology. You know, tell them the story of Hansel and Gretel. Let them make up their own minds. You want to end up in an oven? Go on over there. <laughs> but she did scare Wilma, and when she came back that night, she had a friend with her. And I don't know to this day how she got in. I've asked her several times, and she says that, that the feeling was so traumatic that she's trying to forget it. But I used to get my kids to bed on a production basis. You know, everybody in the tub, everybody washed, rinsed out, dried, dressed, and bed so mother can worry. And Wilma came between the drying and the dressing process. And, I, uh, God, I couldn't hide them. I couldn't even catch them. I had all these little naked bodies running around. But uh, she never hesitated. She picked up a towel and she dried and she talked. Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon family groups. I didn't even know they lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> but um, she finally said the magic word, drunks. And I knew why she was there. She needed me. <laughs> but uh, when she went out that night, whatever she had brought in with her, she took out with her. I gave her just time enough to get home, and then I called and told her that something very important had come up and I would be unable to attend the meeting. Now, I hadn't done anything unimportant for a long, long time. But I couldn't let her find that out. I couldn't let her know how unimportant I thought I was. And that should have been the first chink in the armor, the first time I should have begun to realize I never hid from you. I hid from me. Because, you see, a long time ago, I got that crazy idea that I didn't measure up to what I thought you thought I ought to be. And that's when I built the wall. The wall that was to keep you from finding out how truly inadequate I thought I was. The sad part of the story is, I'm the one that got lost behind the wall. When I came to Al-Anon, I didn't laugh, I didn't cry, I didn't care. I knew it had to end. I just wanted it to hurry. But, you know, even a defect of character can put you into good stead. I had told this woman I would help her. And two weeks later, I went to my first meeting in Azusa, California, and I hope I never forget it. I don't ever want to be an old-timer in this way of life. I was an old-timer when I got here. But I want to remember every single solitary day that feeling of walking into a place, a completely strange place, and feeling as though I belonged. That feeling of knowing without words that I was accepted, probably for the first time in my whole life. But as I said before, I wasn't an easy nut to crack. I took as much of the free literature as I could take without looking interested. I borrowed a book. I marked the chapters that applied to me, and I worked for 24 hours, memorized the steps, the traditions, everything. Waited another 24 hours for I complained, too. And then when I called her and told her that it wasn't helping me a bit, I didn't feel any better, and I guess she figured I was right for something. She said, uh, you don't memorize them, you work them. And that was my first clue as to how sick that woman was. <laughs> See, there wasn't one direction, no tests, no nothing. She did make one mistake. She said, we use the same steps in al and they use an Alcoholics Anonymous, so that's the way I worked them. First one said I was powerless over alcohol, which I'm not, and that my life had become unmanageable, which it wouldn't have been if it hadn't been for him. So I figured that's his, so I left it for him. 
Then the second one had that unfortunate word, said, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Now, an idiot knows if you're going to be restored, you've got to be nuts to begin with. I wasn't, but he was, so I left that one for him, too. But the third one I skipped for both of us. It asked me to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understood him. Well, I understood him. He did not understand me. And I wasn't going to turn my will and my life over to him, but I'd give it to anybody else on earth, whether they asked for it or not. And the example I usually use is our L.A. freeways. You see, when I get on the freeway, I go right over to the left-hand lane. That's what goes straight ahead, and that's where I'm going. Now, I don't know why, but there is always some stinker will get right on behind me, pull just ahead of me, move over, and slow down. Which means I've got to get over here, get ahead of him, move back over, and slow down. So he will know how I feel. <laughs> so he gets ahead of me, and then I get ahead of him. And then he gets ahead of me, and then I get ahead of him. About five miles up the road, he puts on his right-hand blinker, leaves the freeway, and he's home. But I'm five miles past my turn. Because <laughs> he has had control of my life. But I wasn't going to turn it over to God. However, I did notice when I would call my sponsor with certain situations and she'd say, well, just turn it over. But she never said to whom, which I can understand. I mean, this is an anonymous program. You don't tell everybody who has a problem. But on this particular day, I had a big one, and I called her and started to tell her about it. And she said, listen, when he just turned it over, I said, you have told me that for a long time. You've never said to whom. Well, she said, I thought you knew you'd turn it over to God. I said, no, I don't. I haven't even told him. I'm going Al-Anon yet. <laughs> and I could tell by her tone of voice that this upset her. And I didn't want to upset her. That thing, she was so pitiful, really. So I began to wonder, what could I turn over to God that he couldn't allow something that would make her happy? Now, it took me almost three days. And finally I called her and I said, well, Wilma, I have decided to turn something over to God. She said, good. What are you turning over? I said, my ironing. She said, your ironing? I said, well, you said it didn't make... Oh, no, 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 no. She said, that's all right. That's all right. Now, I want you to know God don't like to iron either. Because I used to keep mine in a cabinet. And every time I got the urge, I'd, you know, take something out and iron it. But uh, I turned it over to God. It swapped out of the cabinets. It ended up in boxes. Boxes ended up in the rumpus room. You've never seen a bigger mess than he had. And every time that Wilma would come to my house, I'd say, have you uh, seen the ironing? And that's when she gave me routine number two. It's all right. So I figured if it don't bother her and it don't bother him, I'm not going to let it bother me either. And then one night after an AA meeting, this guy came up to me and he said, Say, Winnie, you got a bunch of kids, don't you? And I said, uh, yes. I was admitting it by then. And um, he said, well... Um, I go to an orphanage down in Mexico, and those little guys could sure use anything that possibly your kids have outgrown. So I promised him faithfully I would go right home. I'd arrange everything. He could pick it up at his leisure. But I'm a procrastinator by profession. He didn't follow me home. By morning, I forgot he asked me. Now, sometime after that, and I'm not sure of the span of time, but I came home from an Al-Anon meeting one night, and then he said, oh, by the way, uh, Bill was by, and he picked up the stuff for the orphanage. I said he did. He says, yeah. 
I said, well, where did you find it? He said, those boxes in the Wumpus room. Now, in case you haven't put it together, he got my ironing. And I want you to know that from that day to this, I have no problems turning things over to God. Because my God, as I understand him today, has some of the most unique answers. I never would have thought of sending them to Mexico. And besides that, he made me look good. See? Now, I don't tell that story to be blasphemous because for me today, I think this whole way of life is spiritual. But I got a certain something going between me and my God as I understand him today that I wouldn't trade for all the tea in China. But I don't think he wants to listen to me cry for the rest of my life. And I don't think one of the prerequisites of a happy existence is counting the cracks on the sidewalk. If you want my honest opinion, I think it kind of gives him a charge to hear me laugh. To know that finally I'm beginning to enjoy that life he saw fit to give me. So I try to keep a light touch. Now, it doesn't work 100% of the time. But that's okay. If he louses it up, I forgive him. (laughs) I went to Germany with my son, Frank, about three years ago. He's very much like me. To visit my son, Arthur, who was stationed there, he's also like me. They're all like me. And we got off the plane in Frankfurt. We couldn't speak the language, didn't understand it, didn't know where we were. It was one of those colossal messes that only I can get into. And the first English words we heard, your luggage is lost. (laughs) Well, my son Frank took off. He was in orbit before she had come to the end of the sentence. He said, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to be the first people through custom. (laughs) And we were. Now, the next day, we were in Berlin. The luggage was in Berlin. They even delivered it. So my conclusion was, God just didn't want to stop in Frankfurt. That's all. (laughs) Now, the point of that whole story is, all the worry in the world would not have brought that luggage back if I wasn't supposed to get it. But what it would do, could do, and has done in my life is rob me of the only gift that I've been given that I cannot replace, which is time. You see, every second of every minute of every hour of every day that I spend worrying about things that I can do nothing about, I have just spent the most precious gift I own, and I don't have any way of getting it back. So I try not to worry. That doesn't work 100% of the time either. But what I have today, thanks to places like this and people like you, is an awareness of who louses up my life. And that takes me right back to that first step. The step where my sponsor, with her infinite wisdom, recognized that I was allergic to the word alcohol. So she took the word out of the step. She put my name in there, and then she said, now work it. That's been quite a while ago, that's true. But even right here, right this minute, when I say I'm powerless over Winnie and my life has become unmanageable, I may never get honest enough to tell you all the things that brings to my mind, but that's not the name of the game. The point is, it tells me who louses up my life. Not you, not him, he. Because, you see, if you tried to take away from me today the pleasure and the joy that I have 
with my grandchildren, I'd fight. And yet in my sickness, I gave up those very self-same things that I could have shared with my own children. And maybe that's one of the reasons why today I am so eternally grateful that marrying an alcoholic led me into a life where I could have the benefit of some of those things, a second shot at really living. People say to me, why do you keep going to Al-Anon? It's very simple. I'm nuts. And if I'm left out there by myself, I flip right back. You think it's hard to get drunk? Try getting sober. I mean, try getting sane, you know. Besides that, and I'll tell you this in a hurry and then I'll shut up. I'm married to a game player. And I'm a game player. We just don't play the same game. And Eddie had one game that was driving me up a wall. You know, he'd come home and he'd look at me and he'd say, I think you could use a game of golf. Now, that's what he said. That is not what he meant. What he meant was he'd called everybody else in town and they were busy. <laughs> so I meant, say, well, I didn't want him to think I was that easy, so I keep a whole list of things I never get around to, and I, I tell him how much I would love to be with him. However, I was going to do the freezer, or I was going to do, God forbid, iron, but anyhow, uh, we banny that back and forth. Pretty soon he lets me win. He goes off and plays golf. I'm stuck with the freezer. And I didn't like the way that game was turning out. So I turned it over, and one night I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and I heard this girl say, whenever Paul asks me to do something that I really don't want to do, I merely say, I'd rather not. Now, I like that. That had kind of a classy ring compared to what I usually said. So I filed it away, and a few nights later, I'm at another meeting. There she is again. She doesn't even, nobody even asked her. She just says, whenever Paul asks me to do something that I really don't want to do, I merely say I'd rather not. Well, you figure it out. I've been to two meetings, two different areas. She followed me to give me the word. So I waited, and sure enough, one day Eddie came home, and he says, you know, I think you could use a game of golf. I looked him right in the eye. I said, I'd rather not. He said, what the hell do you mean you'd rather not? I said, I don't know. That's all Maxine ever tells Paul. But it worked, see? And that's why I keep coming to Al-Anon. I would like to close with a little poem that I use every time I talk, which may mean absolutely nothing to you, which is perfectly all right with me. I didn't come up here to help you, and that ought to make somebody feel better. <laughs> but my sponsor gave it to me at a very low time in my life, and uh, she realized that there were no words that she could say that would help me. So she gave me this little poem. And the first time I ever read it, I had a mental picture of my kids when they used to come to me with their yo-yo. And they'd have the yo-yo clutched in this hand and the string attached to this hand. They'd say, come on, Mom, get the knot out of the middle. And there wasn't a way in the world I could get the knot out of the middle of that string unless they handed me the yo-yo. And sometimes today that's my shortcut. You know, please, God, I got another knot in the string. But anyhow, it goes like this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I took my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched him back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. So if I don't leave anything else here today as my gift to you, I hope you'll just try to remember one thing. If you let go and you let God, 
and you let the caring we'll be sharing here this weekend be a part of your life one day at a time, you got the recipe for a good day. Because you see, God loves us in spite of all we think we've done. And we love each other in spite of all we think we've done. And I love you because you gave to me a life that in my wildest dreams and planning, I would never have found for myself. Thank you so much for listening and God bless you.